Oswald, we good? We're rolling? Are we live? Are we on the interwebs? Wow. Hello, everyone. My name's Lucas. We are streaming live to Cambodia and... No, I'm just kidding. I have no clue who's logged on or where. Um, yeah, so my name's Lucas. I am doing our weekly uh, missions prayer time. So uh, if you haven't been here in a while or you're new, uh, we typically start off with uh, Andrew, who was singing today and playing piano. Um, he's our elder here at the church, and he's kind of heading up missions for us. Um, but I have the opportunity to come this week and talk about stuff. And so, yeah, we'll start with, oh, we're doing all the mission stuff. No, let's go back to life group. That's next week for Andrew. Keep praying for their family. Um, okay, we'll start here. So there's a QR code. Um, and this is for a survey for our Think Together series. And so we've done several of these last year. Um, it's just a time to come together as a church group, uh, bring friends, bring family members to talk about um, what some may call hot button issues or just things that we have questions about or want to talk through. And we try to come and think through those things from a biblical perspective. Sometimes we come to conclusions, sometimes we don't, and we realize that we need to have more conversations. Um, so it's a good time, though. What we're doing is there's a survey that you can fill out online. So if you want to scan the QR code now, you can. If you want to do that later, you can. Or if you just want to show up and have other people fill out the survey, you can do that too. Um, so far, I think there's like 10 people that have done the survey. Um, it's going to stay open, but these are some of the responses so far. Um, most people want to have it in person. Um, a lot of people want to have it hybrid, so we could probably do that. These are some subjects excuse me, um, that were suggested on top. And then we also have a blank for you to like fill in. What are you interested in talking about? Um, so again, there's only 10 responses so far. So statistics, if you know anything about it, uh, those don't really mean anything yet. Like two people fill out the survey and those bars change drastically. Um, best times and days when you can come. It's up in the air for those 10 people. That's great. So no one can come at the same time. No. Okay. We got six. We got six. Never mind. Um, so basically, what would, it'd be really helpful if you're interested in that at all. It's really helpful for you to fill out the survey because then we don't plan it at a time that you can't come. We don't have it on a subject that you don't care about. Um, so really, if there's like three or four of you that are super interested, you could drastically sway um, how it ends up going. So please fill out the survey. If you want the QR code later and it's not up on the screen, go talk to Oswald. Um, he will help you. He just always, he lives back there in that chair. We all go home after Sunday and he just stays there for the whole week. Um, cool. Home Bible study. Um, that is Thursdays at 7 p.m. Um, and that's, you can get to that through our website. Uh, I believe Mike and Bev are heading that up. Um, and so that's Thursdays at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Uh, life group at the Rayleigh's. That is myself and my wife, Anna, in the gray shirt there. Uh, so we meet every Tuesday, 6.15-ish to 7.45-ish. Um, dinner is provided. Anna makes awesome food or other people bring food to our house and we eat it uh, and have an awesome time. We typically uh, will also spend some time talking about the previous Sunday's sermon. Um, so Anna and I have wanted to have this kind of group for a long time. Uh, our heart behind it is really to create 
a group that is about life. So it's not like a Bible study. It's not um, whatever else. It's, it's a life group. So our goal and our intention is to like really create intentional community among people um, who are either members of the church or even people that we meet um, to just have a really consistent group of people show up, become friends, get to know each other, and rely on each other for life. Um, so we spend half the time just eating and getting to know each other every week so that we can really kind of try and grow and become really good friends. We've met like seven times so far or eight, but it's already felt like really cool getting to know people way more better. No, that's wrong. <laughs> way better. Remove the more uh, than we would have before. Uh, and so that's been a really cool opportunity to do that. If you're interested in joining, you can show up or you can talk to us. We have a group me that we use uh, to get a head count for cooking food each week. Um, so talk to myself or Anna. If you're interested in getting plugged in there, we'd love to have you join us. Financial Peace University. So last week, Mike and Bev uh, gave some uh, intro on this. It's going to happen February 19th, 9 a.m. Is that a Saturday? No clue. No clue. Do you have anything you want to say about it? It is a Saturday. Okay. So that's starting February 19th, 9 a.m. on Zoom. Um, so you can log in from wherever you are in the world. Um, talk to Mike if you're interested in learning more about that. He knows, he knows everything about it. <laughs> cool. Um, any other of those kinds of announcements? Wednesday evening prayer, that's every week on Zoom, 6.30 to 7. You can access all the Zoom links from our website, by the way. Um, okay, cool. So I'm going to talk about Second Wind Cottages now for our mission update. Um, raise your hand if you've not heard of Second Wind. Cool. Good amount of people. So what Second Wind is, is it is a nonprofit organization located in Newfield, New York. Um, if you ever get lost, you might end up in Newfield. Um, no, if you go south out of Ithaca, so you're like going down, you pass Walmart, there's Lowe's, there's Home Depot, there's Treeman State Park, Buttermilk, Falls. If you take where the highway wants you to go up to the right, you'll go right past Second Wind Cottages. Um, and so this is a nonprofit organization uh, whose mission is to house and walk with homeless people towards restored lives. So right now in Newfield, they've got a site uh, with 18 individual cottages that have been built over the last seven years, um, a few at a time, all volunteer built. Uh, and so if you're involved with crew uh, on campus uh, at Cornell, uh, they have been super involved over the last six, seven, eight years in helping actually construct the cottages. Um, at this point, the Newfield site is full. Uh, they can't build more than 18 or else all these other regulations set in. And, and it's kind of full. If you look at the site, if you ever visit or you look on their website, um, you can see that it's a full semicircle. Um, so there's some cool opportunities coming up. Um, we just recently had a big fundraising campaign for what we're calling the Dryden House. So somebody donated a house to Second Wind Cottages that burned down. Uh, great gift, right? Uh, <laughs> no, it was good. And so the goal was we were going to try and rehab the house. We were going to tear it apart leave the studs and rebuild it, um, but we talked to some contractors, they were like, it's too far gone. So we have demolished the home, we have a blank slate on this site, and our goal is to build a, a home for women and their children um, who are either in homelessness or at risk of homelessness, um, because currently right now the site in Newfield is only men. Uh, and so 
a lot of people have seen that there's a huge need uh, for women and their children as well, or women who are currently homeless and are not able to be with their children because they're homeless. And so we're trying to create this new space. Um, it's going to be a, a four-apartment house. Uh, we've been working for two years now on trying to get um, plans drawn and all these things done. Uh, but we recently had a campaign that raised uh, about $200,000. So that was amazing. Uh, so we're hoping to move forward, and I just want us as a church to be aware that as we start working on that project, um, that'd be a great thing for us to jump in on. Uh, so there should be tons of opportunities to go actually help build stuff, um, to volunteer, uh, to, to try and do outreach. Once the house is built, um, they'll need tons of volunteers to go and just help manage the place and, and meet with people and individuals. So I just want us to all be aware of Second Wind as an organization. Uh, I'm on the board and a volunteers a bunch uh, with the organization. And so uh, it's just a great local opportunity for us to really um, minister to homeless people and people who are at risk or, um, you know, have fallen into very, very difficult situations that are easy to fall into. Um, and so it's just a good opportunity. One of our biggest needs that I'm going to pray for this morning is a, an executive director. Uh, we had one uh, for a couple years, and that person resigned last summer. Uh, and it's been very hard to just run completely volunteer because uh, there's tons of stuff that has to happen. We have these two big building projects. So uh, if you know somebody in the area who's interested in that position, it's a full-time executive director position, um, yeah, come reach out to me or Anna. We can get you link to apply and that kind of stuff. But uh, if, if nothing else, please be praying for that uh, with us as we, as we do that search. And then, um, yeah, hopefully as the year goes on, we'll have some cool opportunities to, as a church body, go and volunteer with that organization. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. Thank you for the sun being out and creating a bright place for us to, to live today. It's, it's very beautiful, and we appreciate your creation, Lord. And I just pray for second wind right now. I pray that we would be able to, as an organization, find a great executive director to lead us as we move forward on these construction projects and as we move forward in our programming. God, please help us in this mission to house and walk with homeless and at-risk people uh, towards restored lives, God. Um, we recognize that true restoration can, can only come through relationship with you. And we just ask that you would guide each and every one of us uh, towards yourself in that way. And I just pray that you would provide for this organization as we move forward. Um, trying to serve uh, these individuals uh, who you love. And God, I, help, I ask that you would help us to, in our own personal lives, just love each other and those who might be uh, in fringe sectors of society to, to just love them uh, as we would love our neighbors and ourselves, God. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Give it up for Pastor Andy. Book of Jeremiah. 
All right. If you are, and I see students are back now for second semester, so welcome those of you who have returned. If you are not a regular to our church, and so maybe you're not 100% familiar with how we do things or who we are, I am not the, the senior pastor here. Uh, that would be my father, Scott. Uh, and my dad and my mom are actually in Israel this week. They have been there, I think they left Monday of this past Monday, and uh, they've been enjoying seeing the, the Holy Land for the first time. And uh, what few videos and photos I've seen, they are having the time of their life. Um, they were dancing on an Israeli vessel on the Galilee Sea to Jewish music, and so I think... I think they're living the dream, so um, they're, they're having a great time, and uh, I definitely know they're having a great time because they haven't asked about any of you or me. They haven't asked how the church is doing or how the weather is. They haven't asked any questions. They've just said, this is amazing, and basically told me if I actually loved my wife, I would take her there, so the gauntlet has been thrown down for me. Um, so praise the Lord for that. Um, but as it is, we are, we are going to go and continue to tackle the, the book of Jeremiah together, and that is the uh, portion of Scripture that I have been sharing out of when I pinch hit and I stand in for my dad when he's away for various reasons. Um, I think the last time we were in Jeremiah was probably September, October of 2021. It's been quite a bit of time since we've been in the book. So what I want to do is just sort of very quickly set a little bit of context to what we've already sort of explored a little bit. And then what I want to do is um, look a little bit more at uh, Jeremiah himself as the prophet that God raised up for the time in which he was living. So uh, with that as sort of the goal, what I want to do is maybe not look at a specific text at the moment, but just kind of walk through in, in summary what we've already discussed before. Jeremiah, if you don't know, was raised up in the chronology of the history of Israel at the very tail end of the, the continuous kingdom of the nation of Israel after King David was uh, anointed by the Lord, David, then Solomon, they united the largest geographic region of the nation of Israel. And then every king thereafter, some good, some not so good, uh, led the people of God. And along the way, the kingdom was divided north and south. And eventually the Northern kingdom went into captivity first, and all that remained was the southern section. And it was about 400 years of history. And throughout that history, God would continually uh, send prophets to his people to call them to a proper covenant relationship with himself. And in the chain of history, and then in the series of prophets that God raised up, We've been looking at Jeremiah, and it's unique in his particular prophecy because he comes onto the scene as the last voice to the people of God prior to the judgment of their land. He's the last voice to the people of God prior to God's judgment being fulfilled on the land. And when you start to think about that, and, and as you kind of let that resonate with you, just understand how it would have been for Jeremiah. And let's try to get our minds thinking about Old Testament history, try to imagine this experience. This is a nation that was established on a covenant, the law, the prophets. God gave all of these directives to his people, and he kind of made a, 
a, a covenant with them based on their obedience to his word. And as they were obedient, they would be blessed. And in their disobedience, they would be chastised or disciplined. There would be consequence. And this played out generation after generation. And the people had moments where they would be drawn back to a proper relationship with God. And then over time, that would plateau. It would start to fizzle out, and the people would start to drift away from God. And God would bring a prophet to remind them to have a a, a righteous walk with the Lord. And so then they would return to the Lord. And there was this ebb and flow in the relationship. But as Jeremiah comes onto the scene, there's been nothing but continual drifting further and further and further away from what God had called his people to be living out. And the last time we were together, we were looking really at like Jeremiah chapters 4 through 6. And in my view, Jeremiah is very much like that, um, like that movie uh, experience when there's an aircraft in the air. And I think the way I picture it is, you know, any movie where there's a disaster that's imminent, the aircraft is in the air, and you hear the little like warning beep in the cockpit, right? The little beep, beep. And, and the plane's flying and the, the music in the movie starts to intensify and like people start to panic and the pilot starts sweating and the people in like coach start freaking out and the beeping gets louder and louder like just as the plane starts to lose altitude and like approach like a destructive landing. And that's essentially what Jeremiah was. He was the beep in the cockpit for the nation of Israel saying, you're about to hit you're losing altitude, you're drifting away from God, your idolatry is going to be your undoing. Please repent and return to the Lord wholeheartedly. And the people stubbornly resisted the warning, and eventually God brings the judgment that Jeremiah has been warning them about. And so that's his experience. He has been given this understanding as God has revealed it to him. He was not a a man from elite society. He was pulled from a relatively nondescript genealogy of priests. He was of no great significance in his own personal right. And yet God raised him up because I believe what Jeremiah possessed and what I hope we explore this morning is he had a heart that resembled the heart of God. It was one of these things, if you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that's true, and Jesus actually criticizes the people of, of, of Israel even in his day, is that with their mouth, they profess that they love God, but in their heart, they're far from him. And so externally, as Jeremiah comes into his ministry, externally, it looked like on the outside, the people of God were living in proper covenant with with the Lord, but their heart was far from God. So to try to take it to a modern understanding, it would be as if they attended church regularly, They came faithfully every Sunday. They even put a little money in the offering box from time to time and maybe volunteered in some service opportunity within the church. They may have gotten plugged into some sort of life group or small group. They may have served in the community in some outward-facing way. And in an external evaluation, you would see nothing about any of that that would cause you to go, wow, that's somebody who's not really walking with God. Yet when you look deeper than that, and only God truly has the ability to do so, what God sees in the heart is someone who doesn't love him, somebody who doesn't actually reverence and fear him. And so externally they're going through the motions, but internally there's no love for God. And so this is, this is the context, this is the dynamic of Jeremiah's day. He's coming into a place where just 
prior to the, the judgment of God falling, he's the last voice of warning, calling the people to repentance. And that was our message the last time we were together. Repentance is God's gift to us to course correct when we've gone the wrong way. Repentance is a gift. It's not a bad thing. It's a blessing. It gives us the opportunity to renew and restore our relationship with the Lord and return to him in our heart. Not just externally, not just through like the motions, but from within yourself. And only you before the Lord truly know this reality. As if in your heart, the deep place of you, you truly desire and love and reverence Christ. And that's what Jeremiah was calling them to. And as he's doing that, he's become public enemy number one. As he calls people to repentance and as he exposes the hypocrisy of their outward-facing repentance but no change of heart, people begin to resist him further and further. People don't like him. People don't like that message. People don't like to be called to repentance. And God told Jeremiah this before he called him. He said, look, man, the more you do this, the more people are going to fight against you. But don't worry, I'm going to be with you to strengthen you. But just know it's going to be really hard. It's going to be difficult. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles open to Jeremiah, you're probably sitting there wondering what portion. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is a little different than what uh, often we do as our normal habit, which is we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through a particular book of the Bible. So if you come back next week, Pastor Scott will be here, and he'll resume his study through the book of Hebrews. And he'll pick up at the last place he left off, and he'll continue to explain and teach uh, us through that. But what I'm going to do, just because, A, Jeremiah is a huge, long book, and I teach very infrequently, uh, if I were to take that approach, I would literally spend the last days of my earthly existence trying to teach through the book of Jeremiah. And, and so I would, I would probably die before I finished. And, and that's, that's just the reality. So, so what I've been doing is I've been kind of taking a few selected portions of a section and exploring those a little bit more deeply with you. So that's what I want to do here. And so I'm going to kind of piece together a couple ideas and then hopefully we see God's heart displayed. So Jeremiah chapter 3 and in kind of backing up a little bit into this idea of what God's uh, message to his people was. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, Jeremiah 3, 10. This is the word of God, and this is God speaking. And he says, Yet for all of her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. You say it's sort of an awkward you know, launch point for any kind of message. But this is what God is saying about his people. They see the imminence of judgment. They have the warning. The alarm is sounded. Jeremiah has been speaking continually, repent, repent, repent. And people are resisting. God, God uh, speaks of them in certain analogies. He calls them stubborn. He calls them stiff-necked. He calls them treacherous. He describes the relationship experience he's had with his people like a husband who's been betrayed by an unfaithful wife. He describes it as a rebellious child who's gone astray. These are God's perspectives on his people. And what I want to do is I want to try to explore the heart of God. If you look with me later on, chapter 3, verse 15, mixed with the judgment, mixed with the concern, is always a, a silver lining of hope. And God says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God's desire in this was that these people would repent, that they would respond to the message, forsake their sin, and love Christ. 
And he's like, and as you do that, the reward of that, the blessing of that is I want to give you those who will speak the truth to you, but speak the truth to you with love. And my hope this morning is that we step back from the message of Jeremiah, which we've explored three times, and look at the heart of Jeremiah. Because here's what's true. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. You, you can be theologically trained to the highest letter of credential. You could have devoted your life to the exploration and the understanding of God's word and be able to explain it perfectly anytime, anywhere, in almost any setting. But it is interesting and compelling to me that even if you had that capacity, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous chapter about love and how it's characterized. Before we get into the descriptors of love, what does Paul say? He says, hey, you, you could speak in tongues, but if you don't have love, it has no value. You could give great exhortation and preaching, but if you don't have love, it has no value. He said, you could give all that you have, but if it's not out of a heart compelled and moved by love, it has no value. When we look at Jeremiah, it's fascinating. His message is, is a hard one. It's confrontational. It's probing. It's, it's not an easy one to hear. Repent. There's a consequence for your sin. How he says that is the remarkable thing. And so if you would, I want to look at two portions of, of his writing where in a way it's like we're peeking into the journal of Jeremiah and we're seeing his heart expressed as he grapples with his calling, he grapples with the implications of his message. I'm going to guess in this room, pretty much everybody here is probably going to say that they're 100% persuaded that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right? We're a gospel-centered community. The implication of the gospel is that when Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life, there's no other way to the Father but through me, the implication of that good news that Jesus has made a way is that there's bad news. When you reject Jesus Christ, there's only eternal separation from God forever. The scriptures give us that implication. So we're here, we're persuaded the gospel's the truth. Perhaps you've tasted of the salvation of the gospel, but think about the implications of that for those who are rejecting the gospel. Jeremiah wrestles with this reality. He's warning the people, repent, and they're resisting. And so what does that do to a person? Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 4. We're going to look at a few verses here, then we're going to skip over to Jeremiah chapter 8. We're going to pull these scriptures up. So Jeremiah chapter 4, the messenger of God speaking to his people. He's been standing in the courts of the temple just telling them to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the people are rejecting it. They love their sin. They love their idolatry. And so what does this do to Jeremiah? Look at me. Uh, look with me here at Jeremiah 4, verse 19. This is Jeremiah speaking of how he's feeling. He says, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is weighed, laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard 
and hear the sound of the trumpet. Verse 19, Jeremiah is feeling within himself the turmoil of the implication of his message. He is projecting the reality of what's to come. And he's like, I know what's coming. I know that the hardness of the heart has a consequence. And it's breaking him inside. He says, I'm in anguish. His heart is being broken by the, by the reality of the hardness of the hearts of the people. Go with me again. He speaks in the same way, Jeremiah chapter 8. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Jeremiah 8.18, the prophet speaking. He says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Carry through with me. Verse chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters in my eyes, a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. When we were reading this, I don't know if you picked up on it, but there was a subtle transition, and, it, and it's an interesting one, of who's the speaker of these words when it was being spoken. I think you would agree with me when you start, you would conclude definitely it was Jeremiah, right? So, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me, behold the cry of the daughter of my people, from the length and the breadth of the land, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? It sounds like Jeremiah is lamenting over the condition of his people, yeah? But if you look, interestingly enough, 21, for the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. And then he goes on, verse 1 of chapter 9, Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place that I might leave my people, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. Go on, verse 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the, the Lord. I've, I'm, my persuasion is that this is the mesh point of my whole message, really. This is the thing. There's an inseparability between the heart of Jeremiah and the heart of God. They've become united in their inner reality. Jeremiah was broken. Chapter 4, he was like the anguish within me. He was torn apart over the, over the rejection of God in, in his people. And then in verse 
uh, chapter 8, 18, really through 9, 3, he's talking about the fact that his joy is gone, that grief is upon him, that his heart is sick within him. And I believe as we get to the end of that passage, there's no literary break. And so it's 100% possible that what Jeremiah was really doing was just expressing how God was feeling in that specific moment. Have you considered that God himself can experience these feelings in heaven? God is looking at a world in this particular context. He's looking at a people that he had called to himself that were now rejecting him, replacing the living God with false idolatry, choosing sin over righteousness. Their hearts were drifting, yet outwardly everything they did looked really great. And God's looking at the heart. and He's like, they don't love me. They don't know me. They don't fear me. They don't reverence me. And so he raises up Jeremiah to poke at that issue. And the people begin to reject Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah recognizes that with all choice, there's consequence. And you can free to choose, but you're not free to escape the consequences of your choices. And so Jeremiah is now standing in this place of tension. And the way I vision it is almost like this guy who's standing in the middle of a ruined city. And he's just looking around and he's recognizing this is the cost of rejecting God. If we were to try to fast forward a few thousand years to 2022, and here we are, right? And we're called of God to be his mouthpiece to the world, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with the fullness of its implications. Not trying to change it and to make it into something really palatable to the modern mind, but just presenting it as it is given to us in his word. By faith alone, by grace alone, the rejection of Jesus is a choice that some will make. And we warn them, not just for those outside of the church, but now into the church community, the work of the pastor is in part to warn the people of God to a righteous life and to be concerned when he sees drifting and sin and error in the way. And Jeremiah is trying to be faithful to this, and yet as he's being faithful to the calling, he is being rejected more. What does that do in the heart of one of God's people? You're faithful. You're obedient to the call. You engage faithfully. You speak exactly what God told you to say. And you're hated for it. And nobody loves you more. In fact, you're less popular, less liked, less enjoyed. Your circle of friends gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then ultimately... You experience something within you that can only be true if you're possessed of something that only heaven can give. And that's agape love. The one thing that has struck me the most as I read through Jeremiah, and, and we're going to try to associate, actually the word of God associates Jeremiah with Jesus, is that Jeremiah can only experience the things that he's experiencing within himself because heaven had filled his heart with agape love. Nagape love, if you don't know, is the love for the other sacrificially when there's no response, when there's no return, when there's nothing, quote unquote, in it for you. Romans 5 tells us that Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. That's agape love. He didn't love us when we were the most lovely. He didn't love us when we were at our best. But in fact, he loved us just the same when we were at our worst. And he died for us not when we were yearning for his salvation, but way prior, 
His love was on full display well before we ever desired it or earned it, not that we ever could, or even tried to improve upon our condition to qualify us to receive something. That's love. And if you're in any kind of serious relationship right now, maybe you're dating seriously, you're engaged, maybe you're married, you understand this reality, that in the bright fullness of love, there is the shadow of pain. Because without real love, there can be no experience of true suffering and pain. And I want you to grab a hold of this reality, and I want you to not forget this. When we talk about loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as Jesus has taught us, what that means is you are not only willing to pour out all, but you're willing to do it even when there's, quote-unquote, nothing in it for you. And even and especially when as you faithfully do that, you're rejected, they don't listen, there's no accepting of Jesus, there's no repenting and turning from sin, and the pain and the suffering that can take hold of your heart when you recognize the implication of that reality. It is a hard place to be. And Jesus, I believe, gives us an example of this. I 100% am persuaded Jeremiah is reflecting back the heart of God to a broken and a falling world. And I believe God is grieved. His heart breaks. He knows what's happening, and his heart is moved. It's impossible to love without being made vulnerable to pain. If you are currently parenting, you also understand this reality. As a parent, you like to believe that you selflessly love your children. Sometimes you're in it for yourself a little bit. I mean, what better free entertainment than children? Oh, it's not free. I take that back. <laughs> it's not free. It's not free. You pay for it in every which way. But you're delighted to do so, right? Think about, think about it. Maybe you've had these moments where you see your kid about to do something and you know it's going to be a really bad decision. You're like, that is going to end so bad. And there's a certain age and there's a certain situation in which you 100% have to intervene, right? Don't run with scissors, kitchen knives, power tools, weaponry, any of that kind of stuff. You intervene immediately. But when you see your kid, like, you know, about to launch themselves off of a couch, after you've told them like 100 times you shouldn't do that, there comes a point where you're just like, go ahead and launch. I'll pay the doctor bill. And there's a part of you that before they launch, you know it's going to hurt them. And so like you start to feel the hurt before they land. Like you know it's going to go bad. And man, in your heart, you're just, you feel that tension. You're like, oh, this is going to be really horrible. And you're cringing. And then they just do it. And then you're there to minister that grace. And hopefully they learn and they don't do it again. And, and, and so in a way, that's what I'm trying to give expression to is that because you love, you can experience pain at a level that you could never experience if you were never loving. First John tells us that God is love. I think we'd all agree that's what the Bible says, God's love. What does Isaiah 53 tell us about Jesus? Isaiah came before Jeremiah. 
He had a much more hopeful message to the people of God. But what does Isaiah 53 tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow and that he wept regularly. How is that possible? How is it true on one hand, John 3.16? Perhaps you know that one. Probably you got it drilled into you if you've been a church-going person for any length of time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can that be true on one hand, God so loved, and then the other hand we have the verse that Jesus wept? How are these two things true? And I believe love necessarily creates the opportunity to feel hurt and pain. And you say, well, why am I making a big point of this? Like, why am I ramming on this? Like, what, what's the significance of this in connection to Jeremiah? And I, and I guess this is the crux of my message, and this is my heart for us this morning. In the process of being faithful and obedient to the call to love God and love the other, you necessarily will run up against moments where you will experience pain that is so great. Because love puts you in those positions, otherwise you would never feel it. And this is, the great, this is the great tension for us, church. I don't believe today what God needs to bring change in our community or our country is better technology or better ways of doing things or better systems of solution. I actually don't think those are the solutions. I think what matters most is hearts full of true agape love for God and for others, willing to go all and do all, willing to persevere and willing to lose their life that they might actually find it willing to lay it down, as Jesus said in John chapter 12, hey, if you lay your life down, it's like that one grain of wheat that fell into the ground and it died. And through its death and through its willingness to lay its life down comes forth an abundance of new life. And what's happening in the church, and I think what, what causes me great concern is that we're not moved the way that the men of old were moved when they saw the broken world that they lived in. We're not being moved the way Jesus was moved when he stood over the city of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you not known this was your day, I would have gathered you under my wing and protected you. And if you had known this was the day of your peace, and then what does Luke tell us? Jesus wept over the city. Jeremiah wept over the destruction of his people. He saw the end and he knew their stubbornness will be their ruin. And his heart broke. There was anguish within him. Think about this word anguish. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, he uses the exact same word to describe how he felt for the people of Israel. He said, I have anguish within me because I want them to know Christ so badly, I would willingly give up my own salvation that they might know him. There's a degree there of pain only because there was such great love. You can't suffer for your children, for your spouse, for your community, for anything, if you're not willing to be loving. And there's a vulnerability and there is a risk. I grant you that. It's risky business. You know it. The closer you get and the more you attach yourself to somebody or to something, the greater that thing has the potential to inflict harm on you. And so in this simple truth, when I read through Jeremiah's message, I am compelled for our time, for our consideration this morning, to simply ask ourselves, 
are we moved the way they were moved? Maybe I should step back and ask this simple question. Do we even care? Do we care? Like truly do we care? If we believe that the rejection of the gospel is an eternal separation from Father God, does that move us? Does it affect us? Because the woe is not that we need slicker tools to tell people about it. We have an infinite number of ways, more so than in any period in the history of humanity. Our means of communication, travel, and everything else has been amplified to the furthest exponent. But that's not the solution. We don't need more tools. We need more heart, more love, more willingness to be broken for the things that break God's heart more willingness to be moved for the things that we see in the word and in the world. I want to share with you a quote from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. I think it characterizes well what I'm trying to express. He says this, Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, and irredeemable. If you look with me in the New Testament, I want to share a couple of verses with you and then we'll be on our way. Jeremiah is often referenced as the weeping prophet. As we saw there in chapter 9, he wished that he would have literally the ocean's of the world poured into him that he might have enough moisture to cry over all the things that were breaking his heart because his heart was caught up and married to the heart of God. And he had cried himself dry and he was just longing for change and restoration in the land. If you look with me in Matthew chapter 16, there's a clear connection between Jeremiah, the man of old, and Jesus. It's a connection that we get here is we see this simple exchange as you may recall jesus was traveling with his disciples in chapter 16 verse 13 matthew 16 13 it says now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is who do people say that i am and they said some say john the baptist others say elijah and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I draw your attention to this particular exchange because Jesus, when he was probing his disciples for the simple question of, who do people say that I am? One of the answers that was offered, which was being circulated amongst the people of God and amongst the children of Israel, was that he was Jeremiah, reincarnated. And you'd have to ask yourself, why would they think that? 
Why would they think that Jesus was Jeremiah or the, the second coming of Jeremiah? What characteristics or similarities did they share? We already saw in Jeremiah that he was weeping over the inevitable consequences of the brokenness of his people. And I would like to share with you sort of the same sort of dynamic that Jesus experiences. I've referenced it once, but turn with me now to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. I alluded to this earlier, but this is Jesus now as he's coming in to the uh, city of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a cry of anguish in the heart of Jesus in that moment, as he's deep felt love for his people, and ultimately, I believe, as an expression for the world is given voice in that moment. His heart was breaking, and yet he was willing to be broken, that salvation might be made available to all. And so, as I try to bring all this to a, to a close and sort of tie this up, it kind of just drives me back to this sort of simple question of, are you willing to lose your life, that you might find it? Are you willing to love the way Jesus loved, even that makes you vulnerable to pain? Or is the prospect of suffering deterring you from truly pouring out your life? The concern, the fear. Man, if I truly open my heart to the world, to others, if I truly attach myself to those whom God has put into my life and love them the way Christ has called me to love, what would that possibly cost me? And it, and. Jeremiah grappled with this all throughout his ministry. Jesus, multiple occasions, weeps over the brokenness and the rejection that the world was throwing back in his face, knowing full well what that's going to cost them. And so for you, for me, it's sort of this reality. Are we afraid to be willing to be hurt for the sake of love? Are we willing then to be like Jesus who said, I, I'm willing, in fact, I'm willing to be a man acquainted with sorrow. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to put myself in that place of tension where the care and the hurt of others becomes my hurt. Jeremiah said, the pain of my people has become my own. It hurts me. It breaks my heart. I think instinctively, uh, God-fearing parents feel this for their children. Your heart breaks for them as you see them making choices you know are going to have bad consequences. You may see this in a meaningful relationship where somebody you truly love and care about, a friend, a spouse, a brother, a sister, somebody that you truly love and care about, you see them going in a way, their wayward way, leading them towards some inevitable doom according to the word of God. And there's reactions we can have. My fear is we pull away. It's too hard. It's too difficult. The pain is too great. And we start to do just what C.S. Lewis referenced. We start to wrap our heart with all of these things that protect us from being vulnerable. We build walls very high so that people can't come over the top and hurt us, and the world becomes less impactful. We can see the destruction of the world, and we just wait till the next news flash. We can consider the particular fate of any individual, and we just think, oh, it's just one in billions. 
And it becomes to a place where our heart becomes calloused, becomes indifferent. We become unmoved. And when I think about that, I think about the book of Revelation. And the first thing that Jesus said to the first church that he spoke to, which is the Ephesian church, what did he say to the church at Ephesus? He said, look, you're doing all the right things. You're faithful to the doctrine. You're discerning. You're long-suffering. You're digging in. You're not quitting on the work of the ministry. He's like, that's all awesome. You just got one fundamental problem. You don't love me. You've left your first love. You have no love. You're externally, everything is super right. You, you proclaim the gospel perfectly consistent with what the Bible says that it is, but you don't actually love the person you're telling it to. You, you broadcast the message, but you actually don't care about the one you're messaging to. And Jesus tells that church, hey, repent, return to your first works, renew your heart, and then go out filled with that love. And so um, as we step back from this, and my, my hope, my desire was that we would look at just those few sort of journal entries of Jeremiah, consider what was going on inside of his heart, the breaking and the longing, and I was trying to tie our minds to this understanding that he felt that way because he loved so greatly. And he loved greatly because the love of God had been filling his heart. And that's something that fundamentally comes only from direct relationship with Jesus. His love poured into your heart, filling you and moving you as you go out into your world, impacting the people that God has put into your life and being willing to go all in, not pulling back, not holding back, not fearing the potential pain and hurt and anguish that comes from faithful obedience. You cannot, and I want you to hear me, there is no substitute for a lack of love. You cannot compensate for lack of love in any other way and somehow make up the difference. You cannot compensate for a lack of love with greater theology. You cannot compensate for a lack of love with greater biblical correctness. You cannot compensate for it with greater giftedness or greater giving or more money or more activity. There is no substitute for the fundamental need for love. And if love is not filling the heart, then it must be reclaimed. And that's my hope and my desire this morning, is that wherever this message finds you, and I don't know what relationships you have or what place you, you find yourself as you hear this, but my hope and my desire is that we step back and say, God, do I and am I moved the way Jesus was moved over a broken and falling world? Am I moved the way Jeremiah was moved over a broken and declining society? Am I moved the way these individuals in your word were moved? And if the answer truly before yourself and God is, it doesn't move me. And I've been convicted of this myself this week. Then I have to repent. And I have to say, God, break me for the things that break you. Lord, I don't want to be like what C.S. Lewis said, so busy with little luxuries and hobbies and activities that I've insulated myself from a true and full experience of what God is feeling at this current moment. I believe Jeremiah gave voice to what God feels right now. His heart is breaking. Ezekiel later on after Jeremiah tells us God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Peter would then come onto the scene a few thousand years later and say God is long-suffering so that none should perish. 
but all should come to everlasting life. He delays the judgment and he sends another generation of his people into the world to proclaim the gospel and to call people back to God. And that's us. Jeremiah was sent just prior to the judgment. And it's not just that he said the right thing, but it's how he said it. It was the pity, it was the compassion, it was the tenderness of his heart as he ministered out of a place of love and brokenness for God's people. And the reality is when our heart becomes calloused and hard, it doesn't matter what we say, really. It falls on deaf ears. If I were to step back right now and and just ask you to think about this, I'm sure you've had lots of different conversations with lots of different people. And if you were to take two different examples from your own life experience and just think about them, you've probably had somebody come and give you some advice that was more corrective. They were trying to correct you. And then think about that experience. And was it a good one or a bad one? And I would reckon that it's probably determined, your experience was probably determined by whether you felt that person actually cared about you or not. They corrected you, and maybe everything that they said was 100% true. But in the moment, you can feel within yourself whether that person cares about you or not. And in some cases, you recognize, this person doesn't love me. This person has no care at all for whether I, you know, receive this or not. And I believe that's what the Word of God is communicating to us this morning. Jesus made it plain that the world in part would know that we're his disciples by the love that we have for each other. And in some senses, that love should then be displayed to the lost. And so I have really nothing else to say other than, man, I pray that this becomes true of you and I this week. I pray that as we go forward, the message of the gospel firmly rooted in our heart, the truth of God's word firmly planted there, what also begins to happen is God's heart and God's love begins to pour out in us more and more. You can never be too loving. You can, be, you can never be too consumed with the things that God is consumed with. And I pray that as we go this week, we go with God's heart. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah who, in his honesty, gave voice to the things that were going on inside of him. Lord, he was willing to give us a glimpse into the cost of love. Lord, we look forward to a day when there's a love that we will experience in eternity in your presence that has no pain. Lord, it has no suffering and it has no sorrow. It's not broken over the rejection and the waywardness of others, but is perfected in your light and presence. But God, until that day, I pray that our hearts, God, as your people would remain soft. Lord, I pray that we would remain open. Lord, I pray that you'd be able to work through us, God, in our immediate circle of influence, Lord, beginning within our own homes, our own immediate relationships, whatever kind. Lord, for the community that you currently find us in here in Ithaca, Lord, broadly for the world and the burden I pray you'd give us for that. God, I pray that our fellowship now would be the fellowship of those who have tasted and seen of your goodness and are also the fellowship of those who share in your suffering because of your love in our hearts. Lord, I pray you'd have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.